Well, thank you, Gary, for praying for us and reading the scriptures for us. And Laura, we thank God for you, for your salvation, and uh, we thank you, and I personally thank you for giving us your testimony. That was so encouraging. I remember that day when you came and asked me about Luke 9, and I remember just how your heart was so sensitive to the Word of God, and I was so touched. I was telling myself that I would have a heart like that, being sensitive to the Word of God. And so we're just thankful that God has saved you, and He know that He's the author and perfecter of your faith. And the good work that he, he started, He will complete in you and in your family as well. Well, I just feel like we could just end service right now and go out and start evangelizing door to door after that, that prayer and that testimony. <clears throat> All glory to God. Well, let's sh- shift gears a little bit and get into our study this morning on John chapter 9, our second study in this chapter. <clears throat> I'll start by asking you guys if you've, if you've seen these uh, motivational posters. You guys have seen them, right, by successories. They might be on your wall at home or you have that stationery or some posters at your work. Uh, these are big posters with pictures of eagles flying, runners running, uh, a sailboat um, sailing off the horizon. And underneath it, it's got some inspirational quote about chasing dreams, about taking risks, about believing in yourself and hard work. You've seen these, right? Uh, this past week, I found the website, and I'll tell you guys the website address. You guys might want to, if you have time, browse through them, called despair.com. <laughs> despair.com. <laughs> they sell what they call demotivational posters. Instead of the inspirational and often, you know, self-esteem-laced uh, quotes, the psychobabble quotes, all the posters have quotes that are brutally honest. And I emphasize the word brutally. Um, these posters confront such ideas as you can do anything you want if you put your mind to it, right? That's not true. And these posters confront these false ideas. One of them had a picture of a runner with his face in his hands, like crying. And it had a bold letter, failure. <laughs> and then it said, when your best just isn't good enough. <laughs> Man, that's honest, right? <laughs> Another popular item was a poster with um, snowflakes, a picture of snowflakes. And it said, Rem- always remember you are unique. There's, you're, there's no one in the world like you. You're unique, just like everybody else. Right? <laughs> My favorite one, and this one, if you can't handle it, I apologize, but this one is very honest. The, <laughs> the bold letter is dysfunction. The only consistent feature of all of your dissatisfying relationships is you. <laughs> wow. <laughs> right? The only consistent feature of all of your dissatisfying relationships is you. I don't want a gift from this company, so I don't want... I mean, that's really honest. That's brutally harsh. Cold and hard, but it is truth. And truth sometimes is difficult to accept, right? Some people can handle the truth, some people cannot. That famous question in that movie, can you handle the truth? Can you handle it? And here is Christ in the Gospel of John declaring truth. And there are two responses. Some people can handle it, and some people just cannot handle the truth that Jesus is the Christ that Jesus is God's son. 
First of all, there are many responses of people who see the truth of Christ and respond accordingly with faith. We've seen many people thus far in our study of the Gospel of John from every category of life believing in Christ. Remember the last prophet, John the Baptist, he sees Christ, he sees Jesus, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. A few chapters later, we see a woman from Samaria. She's an adulterous woman. She's had five husbands. Sin epitomizes her life. And yet, when she hears Christ, she says, You are the Christ. You are the Messiah. She brings Samaritans who also declare, these, these apostates declare that Jesus is the Son of God. Later on in John chapter 4, we met that royal official in Cana who believed in Christ. Remember him? He said, you don't need to come to heal my son. Just say it now. And I believe. And he took Jesus at his word. That's faith. And he went away and believed. Not only that, his whole household believed. Remember John chapter 6. The end of John 6 where uh, Peter declares, you are the Holy One of Israel. You have the words of life. And he declares and professes his faith in Jesus. And in John chapter 7, we saw many pilgrims in Jerusalem believing in Christ. We've been richly blessed thus far, studying the lives of so many different people who've come to faith, personal faith in our Lord. But at the same time, we've also seen a lot of lack of faith. Many who did not believe in Christ, who could not and who would not handle the truth. Remember in John 3.12, we saw the unbelief of Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night because he was afraid of the Pharisees. And our Lord tells him, if I told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? Nicodemus, you are the teacher of Israel. You are the rabbi. Everybody looks to you. You're the expositor of the Old Testament. And you don't understand simple things about earthly things. How will you believe when I teach you about heavenly things? And then we also saw the hypocritical unbelief of the scribes, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders. In John chapter 5, our Lord said, How can you believe in me when your only concern is the honor you receive from among yourselves? You're so busy patting each other on the back. You have no room in your heart to believe in me. And they rejected Christ. Remember John 6, 66, the mass of people that were gathered to eat bread. They, just, they were hungry. They wanted to eat again. And Christ said, eat of me. You will, you will never hunger again spiritually. And John 6, 66, perhaps the most depressing verse in all of the Gospel of John, many disciples turned away and no longer followed him. We saw the unbelief of a mass of people turning away from Christ. And then we see in John 7, verse 5, even with his own family, his half-brothers did not believe in Jesus. In John 8, 45, again we see the Pharisees do not believe in Christ. Why? Because Christ is teaching them the truth. So thus far, we've been blessed by the faith of many We've also been discouraged by the unbelief of many. And based upon our study of all these disbelieving people, maybe we could put a theology on unbelief. Get a clear understanding of why people reject Christ. 
Now, to gain a clear understanding of, of this belief, it would not be complete without John chapter 9. John chapter 9 completes that theology for us. It clarifies in detail what I believe are the three kinds of unbelief that exist in the world. Three kinds of unbelief. In this single chapter, God outlines for us three kinds of unbelief. There is, I believe, the cowardly unbelief. Secondly, the willful, stubborn, and hypocritical unbelief. And third, uninformed unbelief. And I'll go through this throughout the message. So, if you miss it, cowardly, willful, uninformed unbelief. Now, let me qualify that. Now, in a sense, there are only two categories of people in this world, right? From God's perspective, there are people who believe, and then there are people who don't believe. People who accept the message of Christ, and people who reject the message of Christ. But from our perspective, unbelief is not a unified category. We see this in the Gospel of John, and I'm sure if you're living a real existence, you see that in your own life. As you relate to unbelieving family members, co-workers, friends, complete strangers who you preach the gospel to, you can sense that unbelief is not just a single unified category, but there, it is a spectrum that can be categorized by three categories. So for us to see these distinctions and study them in this chapter is important. I think particularly for our evangelism, because when we go evangelizing, we'll know right away, within a few minutes, where this person falls. Whether this person is just a, cow- a cowardly unbeliever, this person is a willful unbeliever, or this person is uninformed. That'll help us. I believe that's why it's an important chapter. Another interesting note, a side note, but interesting is, we see the first instance of the division that exists between the disciples of Christ and the Jewish leaders. Up until this point in the Gospel of John, hatred, antagonism, um, just anger was directed against the person of Christ. For the first time in John 9, that anger is transferred over to his followers. In John 7, 7, our Lord predicted, they will hate you because they hated me. And here John 9 is the fulfillment of that as this blind man is cast off from the synagogue. New Testament Christians who were Jews, who were unsynagogued, who were kicked out of the synagogue. And they were suffering. They were being persecuted. They were being ostracized in their own community. Read John, John chapter 9 with great joy. They held John 9 close to their hearts. Because here is their pioneer of the faith. The first one who was cast out of the synagogue of the Jewish religion for the faith of Christ. So for us, it might not have a great meaning, but for New Testament Jews and Jewish Christians today, John 9 has a dear place in their hearts. Well, let's go to the text. Briefly look at the context, and then we'll get to the text. Verses 1 through 12 details how this blind man was healed. We saw this last week, right? He was a man born born blind. 
He never saw a single thing in his whole life. He was out in the temple, wide, begging for money, begging for food. And people were ignoring him, walking him by, because it is easy to ignore a blind beggar. There is no eye contact. He can't appeal to a person. He can't call people by name. So it was easy to, to ignore this man. The disciples were running past him, past him, but our Lord saw him. He stops and he he says, we must work the works of him who sent me. And he stoops down and he heals this man. And then this man goes to the pool of Siloam and he is healed. And then he goes to his neighborhood. He goes to his family to praise God and tell his, tell his family that something that, that, that's never been heard of. This miracle of the blind receiving sight never existed in the Old Testament. He goes to tell his family and that's John, 1, John 9, 1 through 12. Now, starting from verse 13, there was a transition where this miracle is investigated by the Pharisees. This miracle is investigated by the Pharisees. Now, you've got to ask the question, what is the reason for this investigation? Why are the Pharisees getting involved? And we find out the answer in verses 13 through 15, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. The first word of verse 15 tells us the reason why the Pharisees got involved. So, the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. When this man who was born blind with joy, came to his home and neighborhood. He excitedly told them about the miracle that was performed, where his sight was restored, or his sight was given to him. The neighbors got stuck with one detail of the story. Verse 14. They got stuck on the seemingly insignificant fact that the healing took place on Saturday, on the Sabbath. And, Jesus didn't just heal this man, he also what? He made mud. He made clay. That's a double whammy. That's two infractions. He didn't just heal on Saturday on the Sabbath, he made mud. He worked on the Sabbath. And they got stuck on this triviality, this trivial, insignificant details. To them and to the Pharisees, this was a violation of their traditions, not the law of God, but their interpretation of the law of God. Our Lord never violated God's Sabbath. John 5 clearly says, Jesus said that I did not come to break the law, I came to fulfill it. Our Lord never violated a single law of God, but He did violate their man-made traditions. Their warped interpretations, their false interpretations of the Word of God. I mean, they had literally hundreds, if not thousands, of such traditional laws about the Sabbath. One law was, I read this this week, you could not light a candle on the Sabbath. So Orthodox Jews today, they can't switch the light on, on Saturday. Friday after, after sunset, to Saturday sunset, they can't turn the lights on. That's why you go to an Orthodox home, they will have timer switches in their houses. 
that the light will go automatically on at 5.59, turn off at 11 p.m., go back on at Saturday 6 a.m. because they can't work. They're not supposed to work. I mean, talk about bondage. So if you were an Orthodox Jew and you're, you didn't set the timers right, and you're walking, you forgot to, you, and you were walking in darkness, and you bumped your head on the door, because you were walking in darkness, you were really in trouble. You know why? Because no healing on Saturday either. You can't go to the doctor. Unless you were dying, then they could work on you. But outside of that, they can't give you any treatment. And the treatment they give you can't be to restore you or make you better. Just to sustain your your exact illness until Saturday night. You're in big trouble. Imagine that. So they would have patience. They would just keep them from dying, but not do any more until Saturday night. Well, so according to their rules, our Lord um, broke the law of God, broke the Sabbath. He made mud. He healed. So he had broken their Sabbath, Sabbath twice. Now, some might say, is Jesus provoking them? Some might ask, why is Jesus provoking them? I mean, yeah, you know, they are dumb laws. They're idiotic. But, come on, Lord, why, like, create controversy? Why not just hold off on the healing for one day? I mean, it seems to irritate them so much. Why wasn't he just gracious and heal the man later? Why does he always have to confront them so harshly and be so upfront about it? Why don't he take them to a corner and just heal him and tell them to go his merry way? Well, saints, we need to understand this about our Lord. This might contradict and confront our sanitized and man-centered conception about Christ. But the truth is that Jesus always, He always confronted someone at their point of error. He never overlooked an error concerning the things of God. And He did it face to face with them. He never backed off and then gave them a dialogue about their good qualities. Whenever there was a flagrant violation of God's truth, Jesus went straight at it. Not indirectly, but right straight at it directly, and He confronted them. Whether it was an error in doctrine, whether it was an error in terms of sin, He was direct, upfront, and confrontational. Jesus told the truth, Our Lord never said, you can't handle the truth, so I'll hold back the truth until a later time. Or, I'll make truth more palatable to you. Or, I'll make it more user-friendly. Or, more sensitive to your culture and tradition. Our Lord never did that. Jesus held nothing back. He declared the truth, and He embodied truth by His life. And you know what? You know why He did that? Because Jesus cared. Because he was compassionate. He was loving them. The greatest way to love someone is tell the truth. Truth about God. Truth about salvation. Truth about Christ. 
Jesus kept on relentlessly pounding these truths into the heads of the Pharisees in hopes that sometime, in some way, they would open up and understand it. They were following these traditions of men. They were keeping them in bondage. Not only that, they were enslaving others by these false rules. So he had to smash this legalistic wall to get to them. They have perverted the law, twisted the Sabbath, turned it into man's bondage, and at the point of their error, at the point of the perversion, of their perversion of the truth, our Lord confronted them out of compassion, out of love for their souls. There is a lesson for us here in our Lord's example. As we follow Christ, as we are His disciples, we must follow His example. Uh, can you handle that truth? We are to stand fast to the faithful word and declare the truth, setting aside our desires to be liked, to be accepted, to be popular, to be welcomed by others, fear of persecution, fear of rocking the boat, setting those desires aside, we must declare the truth. Let me read to you what Martin Luther wrote years ago. Quote, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point that the world and the devil are at the moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christ. Where the battle rages is where the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield, except for the where the battle rages, is to flinch and to give disgrace for the cause of Christ. End quote. What is Luther saying? If you're standing in Christianity today for deity of Christ... Right? You think you're being bold, telling the truth? There was no controversy on the deity of Christ. That happened in the 4th century with Athanasius. Right? That's years ago. There was no controversy in Christianity. If you're standing and saying, Jesus is God, or the Bible is God's word, that controversy was 1950s, liberalism, it's past. Christians agree it's the word of God. Where is... Where are our enemies attacking us today? That is where we must stand firm. It is in the area of exclusivity of the gospel. We must stand boldly and say, you know what? Only Christians are saved. If you're not a follower of Christ, only thing that awaits you is, is an eternity in hell without God. We must stand firm in God's sovereignty and salvation. Doctrines of total depravity and, and unconditional election. That is where the battle rages and that's where we must stand. Male leadership in the church and the family. I get more flack on that than anything else. And I get, that's like the most controversial thing. More people like, refuse to join our church or accuse me of all these things over this than all the other doctrines. But that's what the Bible teaches, that in the church and in the family, the man is to be the head, man is to be the authority, he is to be the leader. Another one, qualifications for elders in the church. 
qualifications for pa- pastors in the church. I hang out with pastors. And it's uncomfortable for me to stand here. Because they say, are you judging me? Are you? No, I'm not judging anyone. I'm just trying to abide by the word of God on, on the qualifications of, a man, of an elder, a pastor in the church. He must be these things. He must, it says in 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1. And therefore, I must stand there too as, as our church as well. Discipline of sin in the church. Area of controversy. Lordship salvation. These are biblical doctrines. This is where the battle rages today. And this is where Christians must stand fast. It is necessary, brothers and sisters, for each and every one of us to wholeheartedly obey these teachings. We must have that heart. I'm understanding 1 Timothy 4.16, right doctrine, right life. Right doctrine is just take careful web, sit in the sit in the church and listen to sermons. But right life, we must provide that. You must provide that. I can't give that to you. We can't give it to each other. It must come with from your own heart by the help of the Holy Spirit. And what is that? That willingness to do whatever it takes to obey the Word of God. You got to have that. The willingness to do whatever it takes. Right? Quit your job. Sell the house. Several relationships. I mean, whatever it takes, you and I have to have that commitment to do whatever it takes to obey God's Word. And that's 1 Timothy 4.16, right doctrine and right life. That's what pleases God. We've confronted so many who profess to have right doctrine, but because they don't have that willingness, it's a wash. It's a sham. Right doctrine without right life ultimately is not right doctrine. Well, that is what our Lord is doing here. They were wrong. He was right. For him, it wasn't even a question not to heal this man on the Sabbath because of their foolish laws. And ultimately, he didn't even consider that question because it's the work of God. Remember, John 9, verse 4, what did he say to his disciples? We must work the works of him. We must. It is an imperative. It is a must. Who sent me while it is day, the urgency. It is day, but night is coming. So I can't wait till tomorrow. I must do it right now. Verse 5, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. As long as I am here, I must do God's work. Didn't even consider, wouldn't even consider waiting a day, let alone an hour, let alone a minute to heal this man because of their rules and regulations. So Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. The Pharisees heard about it. They gathered around this man to investigate the miracle. So they asked him in verse 15 how he had received this sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes. I washed and I see and I like this man because there is no sense of fear for him. No apprehension, no anxiety. He doesn't change his testimony to accommodate the Pharisees, the intimidating religious leaders of Israel. They were like the ministry of vice and virtue of the Taliban, or Iraq, or Syria, or Iran. You get, you get arrested by these guys and they will know, they found shallow graves of, of civilians just this weekend in Iraq. These guys take hold of you, you're missing. 
Well, this man, there's no fear. He doesn't change or spin his testimony. He, he repeats exactly what he told others. He made mine and he healed me on that day. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he broke the Sabbath. But even within among the Pharisees, others said in verse 16, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? There was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? What is your opinion of this man? He said, He's a prophet. It's getting worse. Their thoughts are, This is all a sham. This guy wasn't blind. It was an all an act performed in public. Christ is doing this to increase his ministry. Let's go talk to the parents. We're in their neighborhood. Let's get to the bottom of this thing. And here we see the first kind of unbelief. Starting with verse 18, here we see the cowardly unbelief. This unbelief is due to fear and cowardice. This is the rejection of God because they fear the rejection of people. They would rather be cast out by God than be cast out by their family and friends. They'd rather be friends of this world than be friends of Christ, friends of God. Verse 18, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received the sight until they called the parents of the man who had received the sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son. That's all they will say. And that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. And look at, look at verse 22, John tells us in his commentary, why they were spitting the truth, or no, why they were lying. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, He is of age. Ask him. These parents of this blind man epitomize cowardly unbelief. They are denying the truth. They claim ignorance. They blatantly lie before their son, all because of fear. They're afraid of being cast out of the synagogue. In the Greek, it is one word. It's a technical word. It, it means just unsynagogued. Anybody who would claim Jesus the Messiah was kicked out, was excommunicated, was disciplined out. Now, this was a severe punishment for the Jews, Jewish people. The synagogue was the place where they met together for fellowship and everything else. If you were unsynagogued, that means socially you were cut off from the life of Israel. No social relationships at all. Economically, you couldn't buy. You couldn't exchange things. You were really in bad shape. And religiously, you had no rights at all. There were three levels of being unsynagogued. Three levels. All of them are called shamita, which means to destroy. Level one is, you're an unsynagogue, you're kicked out for 7 to 30 days, and with it you got a severe rebuke. They would take you aside and you know, give you a talking to. Level one. 
Level two is, you got the real rebuke, but you are disciplined, excommunicated for more than 30 days. Level three on synagogue was permanent. Was permanent. A very serious thing to be cut off from the life of Israel. That is why in Acts 2.38, Peter is preaching the Pentecost sermon to the Jews, and he says, you must be baptized today. Following Christ means being unsynagogued, publicly declaring your testimony. You can't follow Christ in secret. You can't come to me later on at night and profess Christ. In public, you must be baptized right now to make your stance that you've crossed the line that you are for Christ. Well, these parents, they reject the truth. They know. Their son told him, told them how he gained sight, who it was that gave him sight. But they don't want to believe. They reject the truth out of fear. Their parents, his parents just passed the buck. Ask him, he is of age. Verse 24, so for the second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. And here we see the second kind of unbelief. The willful, stubborn unbelief. This is disbelief against all proofs and evidences. This is obstinate rejection of truth. It's being pig-headed. A malicious denial of what is clear and self-evident. We had a graphic example of this kind of stubbornness, right? During the war in Iraq. You guys know what Baghdad Bob is? Right? Saddam Hussein's minister of misinformation, actually. Mohammed Sayed al-Sahif. I don't know how to pronounce that. Throughout the war, he repeatedly lied. I mean, man, thick face. And twisted the truth to mislead his own people. Especially during the last days when U.S. took over the airport in Baghdad. He was insistent that the video of U.S. forces in Baghdad was a fabrication of Hollywood special effects. Let me read to you some of his quotes. Now the American command is under siege. We are hitting them from the north, east, south, and west. We chase them here, they chase us there. But at the end, we are the people who are laying siege to them. It is not them who are besieging us. The cruise missiles do not frighten anyone. We catch them like fish in a river. I mean, over the past two days, we managed to shoot down 196 missiles before they hit their target. Another quote, They're not even within 100 miles of Baghdad. They are not in any place. They hold no place in Iraq. This is an illusion. They are trying to sell to the others an illusion. There are no American infidels in Baghdad. Never. They are nowhere near the airport. They are lost in the desert. They cannot read a compass. They are retarded. They are not in Baghdad. Do not believe them. We are giving them a real lesson today. Heavy doesn't accurately describe the level of casualties we have afflicted. I love this last quote. Lying is forbidden in Iraq. (laughs) President Saddam Hussein will tolerate anything but lies. He is a man of great honor and integrity. Everyone is encouraged to speak freely of the truths. And the truth is we are winning. 
I mean, just stubborn refusal to acknowledge the truth. And he is a clear illustration of the Pharisees. Look at verse 22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. Why? Because they had already agreed if anyone confesses Jesus Christ, they'll be put out of the synagogue. They're investigating with the conclusion already made. They had already agreed. They're not investigating the miracle to verify whether it was true or not. And if it is true, they will submit to Him as Christ. They were, they were investigating the miracle with the, and the conclusion was already made. They were resolved that no evidence, no amount of evidence, their resolve would change their minds. No proofs will influence their will. They were like men who shut their eyes and tie, their, tie a cloth over their eyes and refused to have it untied. It's not that they just can't see. It's that they will not see. It's not that they cannot hear. They will not hear. A few months later, in Acts 7.57, when Stephen was proclaiming the gospel to these very religious leaders, how did they respond to Stephen's gospel preaching? They covered their ears. They yelled at the top of their lungs. 7.57, they murdered Stephen because they didn't want to hear it. They, didn't want, they refused to acknowledge the truth. They would not believe. They refused to believe. Of all the states of unbelief a man can fall into, this is by far the most dangerous state. When a person won't even listen to the truth, willfully reject, conclusion is made, no matter what I see, no matter what I hear, I will not budge from my rejection of the Word of God. How does this happen? How does this happen to a man's heart? Are some people just born with, a, with hearts that are just, just entrenched as solid rock, hearts of stone? Are just people, some people just born with it? No. It is learned. Such heart has been nurtured by ears of willful sin. How does a man get to this point? Every time they reject the word of God, their heart grows harder. They are less sensitive to God, less sensitive to the Holy Spirit, less sensitive to the, to the word of God. When you hear the word of God and you don't accept it, you don't follow, you're not neutral. Your heart gets a little bit harder every time. Even small rejection of God's word when God convicts you of sin results in this. I want you guys to maybe take your left hand and rub it around against the fabric of your clothing, just briefly. Right? And when you do that, you will feel a sensation of, of thousands of nerve endings, sending signals to your brain that you're, you're feeling your fabric. That's why if you were to play guitar, it would hurt. Right? You can't play for more than a few minutes because your, our, our fingers are sensitive to pain. But if you keep on playing guitar then your body will respond by growing calluses. The skin will harden. After a certain point, 
You can play for hours and hours, and there'll be no sensation. It'll be dull. You will feel no pain, no feeling, no sensation. Well, that's what happens to the heart. And the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, teaches us the Word of God, and we don't respond with repentance, confession, or obedience. Our hearts get a little harder. And that becomes nurture where one day your heart becomes hard as stone. Some of you, if you, if, some of you, if you think you can stay neutral for much longer, you are sadly deceived. If you're counting on a late repentance, and you say, look at the thief, he was saved at the last breath. Yes, one thief was saved at his last moments of life to give us hope. But only one thief was saved. The other one, the other went to eternal hell so that we might, pres- we might not presume upon a late repentance. If God is convicting your heart today, soften your heart, open your heart, and trust in Christ. Accept the truth that is revealed in the Word of God. Now, this condition is not just for unbelievers. This happens to believers as well, to Christians. You know those small, the biggest lie in the world, that the small sins exist. You commit those small sins, those small compromises, those, you give in to little temptations, and then you come to church, you hear the Word of God, and you're convicted by the Holy Spirit. But as soon as you walk out those doors, you forget. You don't remember. There is no response. You're convicted at this moment, but during the week, there is no obedience. Well, little by little, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. Little by little, you're quenching the Holy Spirit in your heart. And your heart is getting harder and harder. Right? Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit tenderly, gently convicts us of sin and righteousness. But when we take His kindness for granted, when we take advantage of His grace and do not obey, there is a consequence there is. Our hearts are hardened towards His Word. Now, for a heart that is hardening, if that's you this morning, if a, for a heart that is hardening, there is only one remedy. There's only one. And that's the Word of God. The remedy for a hardening heart, how can you soften your heart? What can you do? How can a man soften a spiritual heart? It is by reading, studying, meditating on the Word of God. It is by really listening to expository sermons, sermons that exposit, sermons that explain the Word of God. Let me read to you Jeremiah 23, 25-29. Let me read this during the week. It is so powerful. It is so awesome. Jeremiah 23, 25-29. I have heard what the prophets say who prophesy lies in my name. They say, I had a dream, I had a dream. How long will this continue in the hearts of these lying prophets who prophesy the delusions of their own mind? They think the dreams they tell one another will make my people forget my name. Just as their fathers forgot my name through worship of Baal. Let the prophet who has a dream tell his dream. But let the one who has my word speak it faithfully. 
For what has straw to do with grain, declares the Lord, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord. Is not my word like a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces. For a heart that is hardening us, the Holy Spirit, the soul's only hope is the Word of God, because the Word of God alone is the hammer that breaks that heart of stone into pieces. Only hope. The truth that saves and sanctifies is found only in the Word of God. It's the only thing powerful enough to break a heart that is hardening. Luther said with resounding forcefulness in 1545, the year before he died, he said, let the man who would hear God speak, read Holy Scripture. Hear the Word of God. Now, For a hardening heart, a heart that is hardening, there is a remedy. But for a hardened heart, there is no remedy. For a heart that is hardening, there is a remedy. But for a heart that is hardened, there is no cure. These religious leaders, because of their stubborn unbelief, they're coming to a point of no return. But there is no cure for them. Our Lord casts out a demon. What do they say? Powers of Satan. He's a child of the devil. Powers of Beelzebul. He gives sight to the blind. What do they say? He is a sinner. More Christ reveals his glory. Their hatred grows exponentially. It is the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. The only unforgivable sin. The same heat that melts butter hardens clay. Here Christ performs miracles and the disciples' hearts are melting like butter. But these men, their hearts are like clay. It's hardening. It's solidifying. Getting harder by the moment. That's why Christ warns them in Matthew 12, 31 and 32. Blasphemy against me will be forgiven. When you resist me. But when you resist the Holy Spirit, it's unforgivable. Because there's no way out. When you assign the work of God to the devil. You're close. You're getting to that point of no return. And there is no remedy. When one passes this point, they have passed the point of no return. And that is the predicament of these religious leaders. Verse 28, when this man says Jesus is a prophet, they revile him saying, we are disciples of Moses. No, they are not disciples of Moses. They are disciples of Pharaoh. They are children of Pharaoh. Same thing happened to him. Moses came and performed ten miracles on Egypt. Ten plagues. And Pharaoh saw the glory of God and yet he hardened his heart. He refused to acknowledge Yahweh. He refused to submit to the sovereignty and the authority of the living God. When the river Nile was turned to blood in Exodus 7, Pharaoh's heart is hardened and unmoved. The plague of frogs devastate the land. Pharaoh hardens his heart. When lice 
It spreads throughout the land of Egypt. Again, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Plague of flies, Pharaoh hardens his heart. Livestock is diseased, Pharaoh hardens his heart. The fifth plague, and then from sixth plague, when boils come upon the land, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Hail came, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. When locusts came, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. When darkness came, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And before the tenth plague, Moses went, warned him, and Moses said, I will never see you again. I will never appear before you again. You will never see me again. I will visit you no longer. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Moses was representing God. God was saying, you passed the point of no return, Pharaoh. The unforgivable sin. Your heart is like clay, and more I reveal myself, more your heart is hardening. Therefore, no more, I will not see you again. There is a remedy for a hardening heart, but no cure for a hardened heart. While your heart is still malleable before the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, before the Word of God, repent today. Repent before the Word of God and the glory of God. The third category of unbelief is found in this man, the blind man. Uninformed unbelief. This is the unbelief of the searching heart. The heart is unbelieving because the heart doesn't know the truth. His first statement about Jesus is, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. Because I was blind when I saw him. And when I gave my sight, he was nowhere to be found. I came here. And then as he listens to the charges of the Pharisees, he thinks about his own statement about whether he's a sinner or not. And then he says to himself, he can't be a sinner because he gave sight to a blind man. God doesn't listen to a blind man. Therefore, he must be from God. Good logic. Therefore, he must be from God. Go down to verse 35. We'll study this in weeks to come. They cast this man out. He doesn't relent in his testimony. He doesn't compromise. He stands firm. They, they cast him out from the synagogue. And then a man comes to him. Do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus comes to him. Verse 36. What does it say? This man, uninformed unbelief. Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? He's a searching heart. I don't believe because I don't know the truth. I don't know the man. Who is he? I want to believe in him. Seeking to know Christ and believe in Him. And we find that He does indeed trust in Christ and He is saved. Oh, final thoughts for everyone here. How is your heart this morning? Is your heart sensitive to the Word of God? When the Holy Spirit applies this truth of God's Word in your heart, what is your response? Is your heart just tender? to your relationship to God, to the Holy Spirit? Are you quick to obey? Are you remembering the Word of God when you leave here? During the week, is the Word of God your God, light to your path, lamp unto your feet? Are you careful to avoid temptation because you want to please God? Are you careful to walk by the Spirit? 
Is your heart desiring to grow in holiness? Are you earnest in your faith? Earnest to do whatever it takes to obey God's word? Or is your heart growing callous? Where the Holy Spirit has been convicting you again and again and again of a certain sin in your life. A certain relationship. A certain habit. Certain impurity is grieving the Holy Spirit. And though it had been weeks, months, years ago strong in your heart, but because now of your carelessness, because of your refusal to, to obey, your heart is slowly but surely hardening to the Word of God. Your heart is being calloused. Where now you read the Word, you meditate and you study, you hear the Word of God exposited, and there is no conviction. The only thing that's growing in your heart is a lack of conviction. You shield from that heart. You lie to yourself by saying, I know doctrine. I know truth. I go to a good church. I have good Christian friends. All along, you're, de- you're deceived by the deceitfulness of sin, pride, covetousness, vain sense of religious security, self-satisfaction. And you're unafraid. You have no reverence of God, no fear of God. You don't shudder at the Holy Word of God. How is your heart this morning? If your heart is hardening, there is hope for us. For the Word of God is a hammer that will break our hearts. But fear, because there is no cure for a hardened heart. Be afraid, because there is no cure, no remedy for a heart that is hardened for the Holy Spirit. God, we are truly humbled by your truth. We thank you for the word of God this morning. Lord, we're not spiritual physicians able to discern our own hearts. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It judges our thoughts, the intentions of our heart. The Word of God reveals to us the condition of our hearts. Lord, we pray and we thank you for the tender way, the kind and merciful way the Holy Spirit uh, teaches us, rebukes and corrects us. May our hearts break before the hammer of God's Word. May the fire of God's Word burn in us giving us a renewed desire, renewed earnestness to obey its truths. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.